0: is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Catholic community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz, and joining me today is my co-host, Peter Land from Philadelphia, and our guest today is Jason Wilde from Englewood, Colorado, just a few blocks away from where I live here in the suburbs of Denver. How are you doing, Peter?
1: I'm doing great, Malcolm and Jason. Thank you. It's it's great to be connected with you almost uh, entirely across the country. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to to talk with you guys today.
0: And how are you doing, Jason? Oh, great. Uh, it's
2: great to be connected to you guys again in uh, this time of kind of isolation. So it's good to be able to put faces to voices and put voices to action here. So thank you for inviting me.
0: You know, Jason, I'm really glad to have you on today since our topic is voluntary poverty i know your family has had a lot of experience with that would you mind just telling us a little bit about your personal experience with voluntary gospel poverty
2: yeah sure um so you know our our journey goes over many many years of um learning and discerning with the lord and being taught by the lord um Uh, So right now we are Catholic lay missionaries um, with Family Missions Company, and one of the charisms of Family Missions Company is gospel poverty. Um, And so we have certainly tried to live deeper and deeper and learn more into that. But really, our story starts, you know, way back. I was an electrical engineer uh, with a major technology company in Texas. And um, for whatever reason, the Lord started moving me in this direction. started asking me to, you know, give up things to start to think about what I spend my money on or start to think about what I valued um, as, as a family and as a, as a father. And I, it just kind of snowballed, right? So it started off with, you know, just cutting the cable first, you know, <laughs> that was just a little tiny little thing that just had popped in my mind. And so we did it. And um, then I gave up my car And we sold our car and all of a sudden we started noticing our family um, growing closer together as my wife had to drive me to work every day. And or I, you know, had to be with my kids more and more in the car every day. And so we started learning that as you gave up some of these things, the fruit abounded out of that. That was unexpected and it was beautiful. Our family came closer together and we started moving closer to work so that I had less of a commute and stuff like that. It really helps us to keep our eye on God um and he's continued to teach us more and more that he will give us what we need when we need it and to really just use the gifts that he's given us so praise the lord for that
0: yes as far as as far as experience with poverty our family was never you know that well off and one thing i noticed was that we were actually, we got in one sense more fun out of life because small things made a bigger impact. You know, there's this sort of idea around that having really high tastes, enjoying, I don't know, fine dining or the very best uh, opera experience or whatever it might be is almost a virtue. But I think it's actually the other way around. I think that being easily pleased is a virtue. And it certainly means that you'll get a lot more enjoyment out of life. And so just just small things that other people wouldn't have thought anything about, uh, getting you know a new book, say, as a Christmas present, was fun. Because of the fact that we didn't spend a lot on the kinds of things that other people would spend on. So in my experience, that was one of the aspects of poverty of a certain type. We were never really poor, but still being perhaps less well-to-do than others was that life was more exciting. Peter, what personal experience do you have with intentional poverty?
1: Well, I grew up, in a fairly middle-class background, uh, in a pretty comfortable setting. We never worried about the things that we needed. We weren't like incredibly wealthy, but I I, I couldn't say that I experienced anything like poverty as a child and a teenager and moving forward. Maybe I had a a similar experience um, like uh, Jason, in that, and and thank you, Jason, for sharing your your experience as a family. That's really touching and beautiful, and um, I really kind of rejoice in in um, the movement that you've embraced towards uh, intentional simplicity, I guess, in order to be missionaries or at the service of others and God. So for me, um, I, I began to experience something of a uh, crisis, an existential crisis towards the end of high school and into college. And during those years, I, I was really wondering what I was living for and um, who I was as a person and what are the things that make people happy. And I went to a wealthy school um, and I, I, I began to reflect on the fact that many people didn't appear to be that happy. And I realized that I wasn't really happy. In, in having a life of fun and partying and um, craziness, it, it it really left me quite empty. And so I, I began to get involved in other activities over my time in college. And one of the things that really impacted me was service work. I went to a Jesuit Catholic institution for both high school and college so service work was part of the kind of the the education in a lot of ways but when i began to take my own initiative and embrace service work i began to encounter people in in settings far different from my own that made me really question um, my life a whole lot more people who um, embodied with very little material goods a sense of joy and peace that myself and many of my friends, really very few people that I knew in Western um, American culture, um, had, and so it made me reflect on like all the things that we have and are striving for, are 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 seeking in our life. In contrast to um, I was I was on a Native American reservation in uh, New Mexico, Navajo Nation. And I also went to Jamaica for a service trip. And in both settings, I found people that with very little seemed to be very content. And content uh, on, a, on a level that, you know, I couldn't, ex- I didn't experience in America. And as, as my journey continued in college uh, and I began to desire to know God more and more, I realized that God was inviting me, prompting me to continue to let go of excess. Um, Like Jason mentioned, I I began to find that less is more in a very personal, deeply personal way. I felt very free and liberated in having very little and just learning to be myself, Um, just enjoying to be myself and not trying to put on any pretense, any show, which is what I had learned growing up and which left me incredibly empty. So um, poverty for me was like this external, but uh, ultimately an internal movement to become um, just me in a way, you know, like I am like in my poverty, like learn who I am in my poverty and accept it and 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 then discover God in the midst of my own poverty.
2: Yeah, I find it fascinating that you kind of resonate with a similar story of starting your your journey with service and um, working through that. Uh, that's a very common theme that I see working in the mission field. We do a lot of mission trips, and a lot of people's first encounter with poverty is in these kind of service um, activities or or service opportunities. I, our family was very similar. In fact, our first um, we took a mission trip to the Philippines. Uh, three year, three and a half years ago, and you know to be walking around these slums where you know literally, if you would hand out a twenty dollar bill to someone, the equivalent of a twenty dollar bill, they would be like, that's that would be the first time they had seen that in their lifetime, something uh, amount that big, and and the fact that you know these children to have milk for them was a birthday treat. You know, it was just like such extreme. Differences from what we see here in our local communities, in our country, and in our, you know, what we think of as our world. Your world is literally torn apart and shattered, and like you have to put it back together. After we finished that trip, it was a very similar experience. It was, we flew from Cagayan um, Oro to uh, Cebu, which is a popular tourist destination, beach tourist destination, to, to spend some days before our flight um, out. And, I mean, we weren't staying in a you know five star hotel by any means. It was you know as cheap as we could find for the for our family. But we felt guilty having breakfast in this you know hotel where you, they were just serving food aplenty. You know, as much as you could want. It was just it was really an eye opening experience for our family. Our family literally just made a, a resolute decision to like stop wasting things. Stop you know treating our life as if it's just all given. And, and then the beautiful thing is that we started noticing the poor, we started walking along the streets of these, you know, resort cities, and we would turn around and all of a sudden, there's an alley where there's a lot of little huts set up in the alley, you don't see those until you have your eyes open. It's it's a beautiful thing when that happens. And so absolutely, that service opportunities are are a great way for people to encounter the poor. And Pope Francis talks about that a lot, the the culture of encounter. Um, And that's such a a great way and a strong way for the Lord to work in our lives and help us to learn about the poor.
0: Jason, thanks for bringing that up. And, And Peter as well touched on this, that one of the values of intentional poverty is exactly that, solidarity with the poor, the poor who maybe did not choose to live this way. And the reason it's important, I think, for us to live in solidarity with the poor is because it's an imitation of Christ. Um, As God, in one sense, you could say that he was rich. St. Paul uses this language that he was full and he emptied himself. And he came in solidarity with human beings. And that's more extraordinary, really, than any amount of solidarity we could have with people from a lower income bracket. There is an infinite abyss between God and human beings, and yet he could have just forgiven us, he could have redeemed us without showing up. But instead, he chose the path of solidarity, of walking with us, even to the point of dying with us and in one sense of course his death as god was redemptive and all that but some people might say well you know being in solidarity with people doesn't actually help them out if you're if you're just another human being in solidarity with someone else and yet i think it's a a universal instinct in human beings to in some sense put yourself in solidarity with others even if that solidarity will not directly and immediately affect their condition i I think that really came to me when i was standing outside of an abortion clinic protesting and the protest was sort of useless because the compound was surrounded by really high walls because some other groups of protesters in the past had been pretty obnoxious so they had to you know put these walls up it even surrounded their parking lot so you couldn't really witness to the people there and they were on sort of this back industrial street where there was no traffic so we weren't witnessing to anyone else and of course we were praying but we could have prayed pretty well at home so we were just standing there awkwardly outside of this wall um on this barren industrial street with signs and it felt really silly and like we weren't doing anything but there was the point that we believed that something really terrible was happening and we were sacrificing our own comfort our own plans to spend a few hours standing outside this wall and that was more powerful than any amount of prayers that we might have said um, at home we were in some way putting ourselves on the line here for these other human beings
1: Yeah, um Malcolm what you what you're touching upon is also it made me think of the doctrine of the church of the mystical body of Christ and how we can be in solidarity with others and that can have an impact on people across time and space through through God through Christ because as God he of course transcends time and space and so that he can he can take our sacrifice, he can take our prayers, our desires, our, um, our works and labors, and apply them for the benefit of others in need completely unbeknownst to ourselves. And that to me is very um, encouraging and heartening that we can be in communion. We're really in communion as a as a body of people in Christ, as a humanity as a whole, in Christ. And so that none of our actions, no matter how how small or seemingly insignificant, can be without an impact on the on the greater whole. I think it's a great, it's a it's a special grace that um, Jesus gives us to participate in his redemptive work of um, suffering on behalf of of humanity. Um, You know, there's a number of saints have commented on the infinite value of a life lived with love and actions done in love and that we can't really measure the effect that those can have. And we will we will see the effects, the fruits in heaven. But even then, the effects and the fruits will continue to unfold, I believe, until the end of time. I mean, I think you can look at the life of St. Francis and how many actions in his early life um, were seemed to be completely isolated, completely to himself. But they set in motion um, a movement in his heart that began to, that ultimately enveloped the whole world. And you can see his life now still attracting thousands and thousands of people from all over the world each day to Assisi, and it's like he's the the life that he embraced, the sacrifices that he made, the the prayers he offered, everything that he embraced um, is continuing to bear fruit in Christ, and and it will do so until the end of time, which is so special. So I think it it, it should give us a lot of um, encouragement to to not take lightly our time to really value how we are living, and to ultimately try to do everything in union with the, the life and love of Christ.
2: Yeah, and I think there's also a, a beautiful um, uh, idea of bringing those two ideas together, of the living in solidarity and your actions having infinite effects going on. It also helps us to live in solidarity with Jesus Christ himself. You know, going back in the past, our actions can also help us have a conversion such that we are connected more fully with Christ and with the body of Christ. Um, and that's honestly, that that's the beautiful thing of a lot of these um, actions, simple actions that we we learn from the saints throughout all of history is that a lot of them are personal conversions. and and it helps us to know that Jesus Christ came as a poor man. He was from a poor family. They were, for all practical purposes, refugees. I mean, and these these are the kind of things that get lost from you know a lot of the traditions and a lot of the um, a lot of the art and a lot of the um, celebrations that we have about Jesus. But he was a poor man. He was someone who was um, you know lived literally off of what was given to him. He was someone who had to work with you know the 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 poor suffering people that he had to work with, and that's the people he chose to work with. Um, and so, as part of, for my personal conversion, a lot of it is also been this rejection of a, I like to call it a machismo Jesus. Uh, this The idea that Jesus wasn't fully man. It's such a um, scary heresy that's happening in some cases that, you know, when he was up on that cross, you know, he wasn't feeling anything. He was strong. He was, you know, bearing it all. No, he was suffering. He was a suffering man, just as if I was on that cross, he would be feeling that same exact pain, and yet he chose to bear it. He chose to bear that suffering, and that had eternal consequences for all of us. And so that's the beautiful thing. And and then it's this paradox that this poor man in Jesus Christ, poor man God, became king. He literally, the you know personification of the first will be last and the last will be first. Um, so the uh, You know, that's for me, that was just a huge part of my personal conversion was that living in solidarity with the poor through Jesus Christ.
0: Jason, I've had the same experience. It seems that there's always been these two heretical tendencies that the church has had to fight against. The one tendency, which makes Christ out to be just a man— And then the other one that makes him out to not really be a man at all, only God. And they actually both started out really early on. The Gnostics were opponents of the first Christians, and the Gnostics thought that since matter was evil, Christ didn't really become a man. It just looked that way to us. just looked like a man, sort of took on an image. And then shortly afterwards, the Arians showed up and said, well, actually, he's just a creature. He's not really God. Because... It's a difficult thing. The human mind does not like this idea that this one individual was both fully God and fully man. The, the temptation is to simplify it, to say, well, this was a man that had a great relationship with God, or this was God who sort of took on an appearance that he could interact with us. Those are both much easier things to understand. And it's very hard to imagine how that would have played out in this one individual being fully God and fully man. But yes, I've seen that tendency just to—it usually isn't explicitly voiced, but just to sort of downplay the humanness of Christ, and even the humanness of our Blessed Lady as well, to forget that they were embedded in a certain culture and a certain time in a specific place. They really were— feeling and experiencing all the things that we feel and experience and when we start to realize that christ enters you know, if if we forget that christ really was a man we lose the actually unique thing about our religion because there's many religions that have a certain amount of insight into that there's you know a divine being beyond the world that we pray to But we're the only religion that claims that God became a man and died and lived with us. That is the unique aspect of Christianity, the thing that really sets us apart, the important piece. And yet that's exactly the piece that can get um, buried. One, One topic I would like to bring up is that poverty tends to scare a lot of people. As soon as you say that word... Um, people start to get nervous, and especially since we were talking about, you know, that the destitute people around the world living in shacks, being in solidarity with them, do they mean that um, you know, we're all supposed to live in shacks? And then another temptation is for people to think, well, since it can't mean living in shacks, I know it just means, you know, being detached from things. We can enjoy all of them, but so long as I say I'm detached, uh, everything will be all right. So, what is it that we actually mean when we talk about poverty
2: So I, I would like to jump in here. I mean, a, a lot of things that I think of when I say poverty, you know there's a there's a um a sliding scale of all virtues and vices. And if you go too far from one vice, you end up hitting another vice, right? Um, so poverty, voluntary poverty is obviously, you're, you're rejecting the, uh, the greed, the sin of greed, or the sin of vice that so many of us are attracted to, but you go too far, you end up in destitution, right? Um, or I like to think of it as the definition of pride, in Judea in Judaism in ancient Judaism was literally turning down the gifts of God. Um, so for them to be humble literally meant to use the gifts that were given to be, to you and not ask for more. Which is an imperfect humility in what we would believe as Christians, but it's it's a beautiful starting point for this I think conversation on, you know, what is poverty. It's God blesses all of us. He wants to bless us. He is a good God. He wants to come to us and provide for our needs. That is absolutely, you know, biblical. Um, And that's where a lot of people, you know, get stuck, I think, with the idea of poverty, because, you know, you're rejecting the goodness that God has given you, right? And in my mind, it's not that you're rejecting it. It's that I think, in my mind, you're using what God has given you for a greater purpose. A lot of times, we found so much happiness living simple lives that when we are given something, we kind of, abho- like, we push it away, right? We don't want to be given gifts, and we, we, we've struggled with this a lot as our family. You know, Christmas is coming up here. Our kids are going to start receiving gifts in, and we're like, oh, they don't need that. You know, I don't want that in my house. You know, I don't want to— deal with that. But a lot of times those gifts end up being used for a greater purpose. God has an idea when he when he gives us something, it is for a purpose. And just like in our life, when we started, you know, living lives of gospel poverty, we found that instead of just going out and buying something and just immediately gratifying our our need for something, we prayed about it and that's what the poor would do. That's what the the anawim, the the blessed, you know, the blessed that Jesus talks about in the beatitudes. That's what they would do. They would not have something. They would be sitting around, you know, in a house with nothing but a candle on a table and no food and they would pray. And the Lord does amazing beautiful miracles through providing in that time of need. And so that's a lot of times where I start with my discussion on gospel poverty is that we have to pray for what we need and not just immediately gratify that need through our own means, through, you know, whatever that's money or work or, you know, um, those, those are all those addictions that lead to our own vice. Again, pushing so far down one path that you're, you're forgetting the other side. Um, and so there's there's the word, you know, simplicity is a great way to put it, a simple life. I like to read it. Uh, there was a, another example um, that I read recently, the abundant life. You know, it's not the good life. I don't like the term the good life. It's the abundant life. It's what God provides you out of his abundance for, of love for us. Um, and so, you know, th- I think this is just a, it's <laughs> in each person. It looks different, too. That's that's the other thing is that I found one family will live gospel poverty with, you know, zero toys, zero possessions, and they are completely joyful and happy with that. Another family. You know they have some things, but they are still living that charism of gospel poverty, and so there's there's also not an absolute answer, I don't think, to this question necessarily.
1: I agree. Uh, thanks, Jason, for sharing. I um I think it's important to make the distinction between poverty as it's understood in a secular, worldly sense, and poverty from a Christian perspective which is, Jason, what you've been eloquently describing. Um, but from a worldly sense, uh, I think poverty is uh, lacking the basic necessities or just barely having enough to survive. And in that sense, uh, poverty in America is a lot different than poverty um, throughout the world, uh, or at least in developing co- what we call developing countries. Um, so, in that sense, poverty, as when we talk about it, especially in America, it can be very relative, depending on the circumstances uh, that people live in. But I, I noticed that in America, the, the the poverty that I experienced here was vastly different than the poverty abroad. And what I mean by that is that um, here, the the poor, I think, are plagued by um, being excluded and. Like, I don't know, making they they probably feel on some level more insignificant in the face of a society, an exclusionary society in which they're maybe being given some of the basic basic necessities that they they need, but they're not really included in um the society around them. And so poverty can take on uh, that that spiritual level. Um, whereas, like I mentioned before, When I traveled abroad and did service in developing countries, I encountered um, an interior richness at times, not across the board, but at times I encountered something of an abundance in a a very simple life. So I think when we're talking about poverty, we need to keep that in mind is that um, it's complicated, has multiple uh, maybe definitions. But I think one of the most important ones, at least for us as Christians is, is to look at it in light of um, scripture, in light of the church, in light of the life of Christ and his teaching. And so when I think about it in those, in those terms, I think of poverty primarily as an interior attitude and disposition, one in which we ultimately feel ourselves uh, as poor before God, weak and dependent as creatures in need of his mercy, his love, his providential um, kindness and and knowing that all things come from him. You know, all the things that we need for our life, ultimately, whether they come through secondary means or supernaturally, um, they come from God. And I think that's one of the dangers in the modern world is that it appears that, that we have a, a control of all of our basic needs and that we've provided them for ourselves. Um. Even though you know, you know, probably in light of exploiting, all, all you know, peoples around the world, which we don't often take into account as Americans, that much of our wealth is is built upon the the sweat, blood, and tears of people across across the world. Um. But despite that, like, yeah, there's very few people I think that really recognize that the the wealth here is is ultimately. You know, it comes from God. And so I think poverty invites us to not store up um, what is superfluous, not to not store up an excess of things. I mean, we can think about multiple gospel passages that speak of, um, you know, like that one the one man who um, stored uh, he had multiple years of of grain and he told himself to uh, eat, drink and be merry um, because he had all this stored up for himself, and God appeared to him and said, "You know, you fool, this night your life will be accounted of you and Jesus I think ends that parable by saying this is how this is how it will be for all those who are poor in the things that matter to God and so it seems to me that Jesus is inviting a, a poverty that allows that focuses on a um, on the things that are eternal, the things that, are, that matter to God, um, the virtues, the looking out for our brothers and sisters um, in service to our brothers and sisters. So I think there's this dynamic of um, kind of having a, an interior attitude of poverty before God and even before others like St. Francis, desiring to be the humblest man um, at the service of all people and subject to all people and then, um, but in that, in that poverty, becoming rich in the things of God that make material things less and less significant. And I think that's a very important point for me, is that the more I've discovered God in my life, the more I've opened my heart up to God and to others and to genuine relationships, um, material things become more of a burden. Something like you were saying, Jason, that I, I don't I don't want a lot of things. They they tend to clutter my life and and they become overwhelming and there's greater joy in in the simpler things of life. That's what I've discovered. And and the greatest joy in just being with God in in my utter poverty.
0: Peter, thanks for bringing up that point about the difference between American poor and poor in other parts of the world, because I think it really does highlight something important. I think it partly highlights the fact that in the United States, most of us are rich. Even people who think they're poor are rich by world and historical standards. Um, So say someone here might feel bad because they're driving a really old beat up car. But in the third world, anyone who can drive a car is obviously rich i mean there's, there's just no doubt about it and if you look at it from like a world historic standard think about the time of christ in which even rich people the best they could do was riding in a chariot or being carried in a litter in a hot dusty climate so when they traveled they could not get into an air-conditioned space and go down the road at 60 miles an hour i'm imagining that you know tiberius caesar would have probably traded a lot of his wealth for the ability to get into an air conditioned space and, and drive down a road at 60 miles an hour, let alone getting into an airplane and you know shooting across the country in a few hours. That would be something absolutely beyond the richest uh, men in Christ, even beyond their wildest dreams. And I think it's interesting that Tiberius Caesar, so probably the richest man of all at Christ's time, one of the things that was considered remarkable about him is that he was able to eat one cucumber every day of the year. And that was because he was so rich. He had a, he had a special fondness for cucumbers. And so he got his slaves to build what we would now call glass uh, houses or frames in one, at one of his palaces. And they heated them up in the wintertime. And he managed to get a cucumber a day. And that was considered remarkable enough that it ended up, you know, in, in when people wrote about his life. And another remarkable thing about him was that he managed to build in a shallow bay. He managed to build a palace out into the water, so that it was partly some the lower walls are partly submerged. So that it would stay cooler during, you know, the hottest part of the summer in that Mediterranean climate. So here's the the richest man in Christ's time means somebody with air conditioning and ability to eat cucumbers out of season. And then you think about the United States where you know we're eating fruits from the tropics at any time of year certainly not you know having to eat with the seasons we're driving around in cars we're able to talk to one another across thousands of miles instantaneously just we're living in a fairyland world and yet we can't be grateful because of the fact that in our culture someone who has you know a beat up car and an apartment with air conditioning and the ability to eat bananas whenever they want feels that they are not worth much because the other people have so much more so our culture is strange it's kind of doubly corrosive in that we're all living pretty well materially speaking not all of us like i know some people who are homeless and are not having a good life at all out in the cold but most of us 95 percent of us are living by world historic standards really comfortable lives and yet at the same time most of us feel that we're At least not as rich as we want to be or perhaps even poor because of the fact that there are people around us who are so much richer. And in our culture, unless you're really rich, you don't get any respect. You don't belong in our culture unless you have a lot. And then I thought the other really good point you bring up is that poverty isn't just not having something. You know, if it was just that, it would be a fairly stupid thing. There's not really much point in not having things. I like the way Father Dubé put it in Happy Are You Poor. He said, poverty is a nothing something. He compared it to to readiness to read. If a child is ready to read, the child still doesn't know how to read, but he's ready to learn. And, And he said poverty is the same sort of thing. If one has a certain amount of factual poverty, one isn't thereby superior to people who are not poor, but one has a nothing something, one is ready, to experience the Lord in a way that someone who is more wealthy is probably not. And I think one of the ways in which people who are somewhat um, less well off are more ready is that, as you said, they're more dependent on God. They re- or rather, we're all the same amount dependent on God, but they realize that they're dependent. I remember i was stuck on the side of a hot road waiting for a bus that never came and i didn't have a car so i was dependent on this rather shaky transit system and i didn't have a smartphone so i wasn't able to call anyone or see if any bus was ever going to come i was running low on water i was not not feeling so well and i was just really unhappy i was thinking this is just terrible so I was praying to God, God, you know, help get me out of this. Like I can't contact anybody. I don't know what's happened to the bus line. Um, and then I realized that this kind of failure to, you know, inability to control circumstances is exactly one of the values of poverty, that the rich at least have an illusion that they're entirely in control, that they can direct things. And then... Ultimately, every one of us is going to have to face death, at which we'll lose control. And poorer people are used to that, used to finding themselves in situations where they just have to pray and possibly ask other people for help. I know when, like, because I don't carry a smartphone, I have to ask other people, oh, could you make a call, you know, and and it always feels annoying to have to ask them. It feels bad to have to ask. But I become more dependent on other people for rides, for phone usage, become more dependent on God for things going well. And therefore, in one sense, we're practicing for that last moment at which we will all lose control. All living is a practice for dying. So, And and with more poverty, if we don't fall into that ungrateful, um, unhappy, envious spirit that can affect the poor in first world countries... If we don't fall into that and instead are grateful for what we have and embrace our dependence on God and on other people, we will have a preparation for that moment when we meet him. Yeah, I think that goes back
2: to what Pete, what you said, Peter. It's, it's, you know, gospel poverty is an internal disposition. It's not a physical state, Right. Um, meaning at some levels, it's, it's how do you think about your things? And, and exactly what you're saying, Malcolm, it's how do you think about your dependence? Are you dependent on God or are you dependent on your money? Are you dependent on yourself? Um, and, and that's what the beautiful thing about, you know, um, just this charism of gospel poverty is that it teaches us so much more than just living simply. It teaches us dependence on God. And yet, at the same time, it also makes us thankful and grateful to God for what he does provide to us. Um, one great example there is that um, we our, our first foreign mission experience living in uh, foreign missions was in Costa Rica, where, you know, they, they have full government provided health care there and so you would think that's a great thing you know that means there's you know it takes care of so much sickness and and um takes care of that kind of poverty and yet the people that we worked with they were either a uh Nicaraguans who had fled from the utter destitution and and violence happening there or b they were just really poor and The interesting thing that we found out there is that they would go to the hospital and they would be complaining that, you know, I'm having these, you know, horrible headaches or this horrible leg pain and, you know, there's something obviously wrong or even they would have cancer and the doctors would send them home with Tylenol versus if you were well-to-do you would go in and the doctor would refer you to an oncologist and you would receive chemo. And we got this kind of insight because my wife was diagnosed with cancer in Costa Rica. um, And we actually were able to, we were blessed enough to go to a private doctor who said he had to leave that system because of that inequality that was happening. And so he told us, basically, you can't afford chemo here, go back to the States. And yet, even in that that time of, you know, desolation that we were in. We were so grateful the fact that we had a place to go back to, we had a medical system that we could fall into. And it was completely taken care of for us here. Um, and God completely did, did that for us. We tried to do our own, you know, works of, you know, tried to find insurance for ourselves, and God provided for us Medicaid. And that that's again, living in solidarity with the poor. And we were able to come back and get into the system. And my wife was able to receive chemo. And no, it wasn't the, you know, the best hospital in the city, but it put her, you know, she her cancer is in remission. And we can thank the Lord for that. And we can thank the Lord and give blessings that we weren't a, you know, one of our poor neighbors in Costa Rica who would be sent home with Tylenol. And yet we can also, um, we can grieve that. And so there's so many of those other ideas that are wrapped up in this idea um, that it's not just the physical state that you're in, and we can't relativize. Um, We can't say, well, you know, I'm not as poor as this person, which you said, Malcolm, there. Um, But yet we have to understand what is God trying to teach us in our own um, acceptance of voluntary poverty. Um, That's, I think the beautiful thing about what um, uh, Matthew uses the words poor in spirit in the beatitude that I mentioned earlier, uh, the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit, which is a little different from Luke's version of blessed are the poor. Right. And then the Catholic Church comes in and says that poor in spirit, that is voluntary poverty. They actually define that in the catechism, I believe. I I remember seeing that somewhere. I, I don't have the reference with me right now. There's a difference in how. We understand poverty because of where we've come from, but also in living into that voluntary poverty or gospel poverty, we can we can understand the different levels of poverty that there are. Um, one of the uh, Pope Francis's encyclical that he just wrote, Fratelli Tuti, um, he has a great line that I think defines a lot of what we were talking about. Um, it's in uh, paragraph twenty-one. He says, wealth has increased but t- together with inequality, with the result that new forms of poverty are emerging. And that's so true. There, there's so many new forms of poverty. You, you, y'all mentioned it, the, you know, the inequalities, the, the not being heard. There's you know so much spiritual poverty now, even in wealth. New forms of poverty are emerging, and we have to be able to recognize those. He goes on to say, the claim that the modern world has reduced poverty is made by measuring poverty with criteria from the past that do not correspond to our present day realities. In other times, for example, lack of access to electric energy was not considered a site of poverty, but, or was it hardship at the time? Going exactly what you were talking about, Malcolm, (laughs) in, you know, they didn't have electricity in the time of, you know, uh, ancient Rome. But yet, Poverty. He goes on to say poverty must be under, understood and gauged in the context of the opportunities available in each period. And so we have to understand, just as I was talking about with the you know, medical systems, we have to understand that there are different kinds of poverty, There's different levels of poverty, And yet God reaches into each of those and helps you bring brings you closer to him in whatever your time
0: of need is. Jason, that's a great quote from Pope Francis, because it's so true. In one sense, here in the United States, we're becoming, we're all becoming poorer and poorer, even as our material wealth continues to grow, albeit in unequal and undistributed fashion, because our growing wealth has destroyed things that were once taken for granted so, today it's a big problem. We, we've seen this during the COVID pandemic that if they shut down childcare, a lot of people are really in trouble. And that means that people who can't afford childcare at all, ever, are in a lot of trouble. But 60 years ago, that wasn't a problem because one income was perfectly sufficient for families. And if the one income wasn't, there was a social network that would take care of, of children. A lot less people used. Uh, childcare had to pay for childcare um, 60 years ago. And that is because we've become much poorer in a social sense. And I think this is a really important point, because if we're going to try to encourage people in this culture to become factually more poor, we have to show that we're really replacing one thing with another better thing. And that, of course, ultimately is the love and grace of God. But it's also... Dependence on one another. We're replacing individual material wealth, as we spoke of in our last podcast, with community wealth, with communal relationships and strengths that would allow people to be taken care of. Because I, I, I remember trying to talk to a friend about poverty and about how the gospel rejects security. I used that parable you brought up, Peter, about the rich fool. And I said, you know, in our culture, we all do that. We all save up for retirement. We save a lot of money for something that might never happen. You could get run over by a car tomorrow. And yet, instead of aiding the poor or having a good time with your neighbor, you are stuffing a bank account in hopes of having many years of leisure to come. And the friend was disgruntled. The friend said, you know, I'm crushed in debt running around doing all these things, medical bills, I need security. Like, I'm in no mood to hear that security is a bad thing. And that made me reflect. And I realized that my friend was right, of course. Human beings need security. And yet, we're having less and less of it, even as we start stuffing our barns, metaphorically speaking, stuffing our bank accounts, or, or whatever else it is that we think is going to provide individual security for us because in a healthy society it's security for us not security for me and so as well as the replacing of dependence on material things with dependence on god we're talking about a world with that which has more connection even if it has less uh, material wealth and that less material wealth is only survivable in the, in the earthly sense if we do at the same time, build that community of solidarity and cooperation.
1: Yeah, this, wow, it brings up so many points for me to reflect on or that, you know, invites me to think about, but one thing that comes to mind is how Jesus, he really calls us to follow him, to follow him in his poverty, And when he uh, tells that rich young man, you know, there is one thing that you lack, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. Um, That, that to me is something we need to hear again is, um, you know, to just to follow Jesus in his poverty. And as we do, um, let go of the things, the many things that we're attached to, that from another point of view might appear to be our gods. You know, we, we might claim that we're Christian and we go to church, you know, every Sunday, but at the end of the day, what are the things like you, you both have mentioned, we rely on, we look to, we spend our time with every day. Um, I would say most of us, it's uh, many different material things or our comfort, our pleasure, our ego and our image, uh, Facebook, and I think of all the different types of social media. And perhaps Pope Francis, I think he has some great words to to say on these things that are producing a new type of poverty, a poverty of person, um, a greater insecurity. Actually, I mean it's it's incredible how insecure I think young people are, how difficult it is for young people to enter into uh, a face to face encounter and conversation apart from their phones, apart from their computers, because of how they might appear, how they might be judged. I think poverty invites us into uh, an acceptance of ourselves, um, a a humility that allows us to be truly who we are without, like I mentioned before, without putting on any kind of pretense. And I think one one of the avenues that poverty can lead us to is a generosity of person. You know, the less we have, it seems to me, the more we're able to give of ourselves and focus on the needs of those around us. So it goes back to that point, Malcolm, I think you were speaking of is that we can't just, um, we need to replace the lack of material things with something greater and be witness to something that transcends the false securities that material goods bring. Um, Because if people don't see that, why would they ever be attracted to the God that we proclaim? You know, if, if, they, don't, if we, they don't see that the God we proclaim is so is no much greater than the material goods that people grasp after, that people surround their lives with. Um, so, so our poverty in a way needs to be coupled, needs to be filled with, like you both have mentioned, a humble dependence on God that brings abundance. You know, he came that we might have life and life to the full. And paradoxically, he invites us to let go of material things in order to experience that abundance. Um, and so I, I, I'm reflecting on the great connection that poverty has to generosity of person, um, being able to give of our time and give of the things that we do have. That's one thing I noticed when I was abroad and in, um involved in service was that people were very generous with the little that they had. It was uh quite astonishing. You know, they, they weren't um reluctant to give to their neighbors the little that they had. Whereas I, I find that in America we're like, you know, we can't even we don't even want to go near the, the homeless man on the street because he might ask us for some money. Um, and rarely do we want to know who needs what and have others be a burden on us. I don't wanna discount the very um, difficult nature of life for a lot of people in America. I know you mentioned, Malcolm, that about you know your guess of about 95% of people live in, in comfort in this country, but I do think there are a lot of people who are um, just trying to make ends meet working two jobs a day and have very little time to, Enjoy the, maybe the material things that this, this world, that our culture offers. So um, I guess what, one of the things that I'm, I'm seeing more and more is that this individualistic lifestyle in which we try to provide for ourselves um, is broken and leaves us uh, exhausted and poor in a negative sense. Um, in, in need of so many things in need of attention, in need of re- relationship, in need of God, whereas I think if to, to bring this conversation back into this intentional community element, um, if, if we let go of material things um, in light of relationships or in light of entering more deeply into community with those around us, um, it becomes less of a burden to, to have less. I think, uh, Jason, you kind of spoke on that just with your family dynamic. And I know for me, even though I'm living kind of a single consecrated life, apart from a larger family, I've I've found that uh, this this poverty, that this voluntary simplicity leads itself into a deeper relationship with the things of heaven and the things of God, the things of eternity that bring true and lasting joy. And, and there's a witness of that to other people as, I, as I've traveled throughout the world, as I meet and encounter others that I think speaks of the need for and the place of God in our lives.
0: Peter, you're very right. Even though most people in our country can feed themselves, have some kind of shelter against the weather that's probably heated and, you know, the basic needs are taken care of and they might even be considered doing fairly well if they were suddenly transported with all their things to some poorer country. You're, tr- you're very right that they are plagued by that insecurity. They're constantly struggling to make ends meet. And more recently, the, the governor here in Colorado um, extended a ban on evictions because he said that because of the the economic damage from the pandemic, a huge number of uh, Colorado families were in imminent danger of being evicted, ending up on the street with nowhere to go and even outside of crazy times like a pandemic, there's a huge number of people who are always right on the edge of Becoming homeless and don't know from week to week where the food and housing are going to come from. So, even though most in our country do ultimately end up with enough, it is spiritually degrading the conditions that a large percent of our fellow countrymen live under. And I think that that's a good transition to our next podcast where we'll be talking about what our economic life together looks like, what our economy is, our provisioning of material goods for ourselves, and what it should look like uh, in the light of Christ and what we can do about that as a community. So uh, thanks so much, uh, Peter and Jason, for joining us today. I think it was a really great conversation. I'm so pleased that you were both able to join me and give your insights. Well, thank you. Thank you, Malcolm, for inviting me.
2: I hope I was able to contribute to the conversation. (laughs) And thank you, Peter, for joining us as well.
1: Yeah, thank you both, guys. It was really a blessing and an honor to continue in this discussion on such important themes. Uh, yeah, have a, have a wonderful, blessed rest of your week.